and welcome once again to Core Ideas, a paleo-limnology podcast where we delve into all things lake sediments. As always, we are your co-hosts, myself, Adam Jesiorski. And Josh Thienborn. Thanks for coming back again, everyone. Okay, and today's episode is going to be a study on graduate studies, where Josh and I are basically going to talk about what it means and what it's like to be a paleo-limnology graduate student. Yeah, I guess we'll share a few experiences. It's all going to be from our own personal opinion, obviously. Uh, so it'll be related to being a graduate student in paleolimnology from a Canadian perspective, or yeah, there might be some implications for physical sciences more broadly, but uh, trying to just think about grad studies in general and some of the eccentricities and nuances and all those interesting things that go into it. Yeah. And you know, at this time of year, you've got to, like, everything's been thrown into absolute chaos by um, the current events of the coronavirus. But, you know, this would be the time when you would have fourth-year students wrapping up their undergraduate theses and ready to take the next step, potentially, into um, either going straight into a May start field season of a master's or run screaming for the hills as they decided that research is not for them. Um, or taking or taking a little bit of time off uh, in advance of a September start, which is uh, another common way to do that. And in some places, so at our department at York, the only incoming class is uh, September. So there are no May or January starts. We only start on September 1 period. Really? Yep. Everyone starts so as a single cohort. That, and that and that has changed because I oh, just in my, just in geography. I don't know if it's okay. in every uh, unit, but okay. Because I was just going to say, having done my master's in biology in York, about I guess started seventeen ish years ago. Um, I was a, I was a January start. Yeah, I think it probably is our department specifically. Okay. Um, but. Uh, so basically I think a good place to start is, uh, really defining what we, what we're talking about a little bit here. And I think a good point place to start would be what are the differences between a, uh, bachelor of science thesis or an honors thesis versus a master's thesis versus, you know, the big boy of a PhD thesis. Big person, uh, of a doctor of philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking in terms of the, uh, size of them on the show oh yes you, yes you know they yeah mine mine increase uh, the page count mine is right behind me on the shelf here uh sitting uh yeah uh so i guess uh should we start small and and grow from there is that the plan yeah i think that, that's the way to go and you lead it off is because you're actually working on a very direct level with honors thesis on a very regular basis these days. Yeah, not too many. I have a. So, how do you view one or plan one? Well, I think the interesting thing about honors thesis uh, is that they really vary depending on where uh, they're being conducted. They can vary in terms of uh, how many credits they're worth. Uh, but the main thing that I always want to keep in mind is that it's a course. Uh, it is a research program, but it is also a course. So, it's part of the undergraduate curriculum. Uh, and as a course, you know, you're being assessed on it in different ways than you are. It is part of all of the other stuff that you're doing at the exact same time, which is not always the same with the other graduate programs. Often graduate programs where you are taking courses, you'll do them in advance and then you'll go into full-time research combined with teaching. So you're, the students who are doing honors thesis uh, projects 
are doing them simultaneously with trying to finish all of their other uh, often upper level courses. And that makes it, in my mind, quite different from the graduate degrees. But from uh, an actual research perspective, it's not all that different. It's a smaller project. Usually the student doesn't have a really direct role in defining uh, what that research will be, though they can help obviously modulate it and use the things that they're interested in to, uh, to define what their project's going to be. But often it's set by the supervisor uh, more fully than some of the other fully graduate degrees. Yeah. Or any input sometimes, really. Sometimes, you know, you get given a list of projects to choose from that are off the shelf that are ready to go. Oh, definitely. For sure. And the other thing with uh, honors thesis that can make them very different in addition to the number of credits. So if you're uh, so at Queens where I did my honors thesis, it's a two full credit course. So four half credits. So you would take a full credit in the fall and a full credit in the winter. So it's basically one fifth of your entire term your fourth year uh, at at York, where I supervise students, it's half that. So you can imagine that's quite a bit of uh, variation in how much time you have to devote to that project entirely based on just the structure of the university, which you have no, you would never think to ask that before you uh, start your program. And yeah, I did mine at Waterloo and be the same, same as York. Yeah, which is much more common. One course each term. Uh, and then the other thing that can make it really uh, a bit of disparity in the amount of energy that goes into them is whether the student had the opportunity to work in the summer preceding uh, their honors thesis, whether they may have held a research assistantship or a NSERC USRA award, uh, an undergraduate uh, student research award. And that can give uh, a very different experience of the undergraduate thesis because you may have been working in the same laboratory or even on the same project to some extent uh, well in advance of starting your fall term, which would be the start of your thesis. And that can make for a very different degree or a very different project. Yeah. And, and, and building on that, um, it varies massively uh, from student to student in terms of Yes, you have the difference between universities in terms of the course load that it represents. We also have massive differences in students in terms of the amount of their schedule that they clear in order to accommodate the course load. So you'll have students that may have uh, built up ahead through a couple of summer courses and stuff and then have an otherwise relatively light year because they plan to throw themselves yeah. into the research because they had you know planned it out in advance a ways versus the ones that are a last minute decision. Um, in many ways, that, this, that was my own experience. It's like, yeah, no, I would do a fourth year thesis. And when asking around the time when like the, the previous spring of when, when you had to like talk to a professor to line something up, but I didn't have like a three-year plan or anything in effect to make sure that I had a relatively light last semester. Or anything. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and other requirements of your degree, you may just have, you know, the students who we have, some of them are completing certificate programs on top of their thesis. So they have specific courses they have to take. There's a lot of variation and you get very different experiences at that at that point. And also, depending on the nature of the project, some of them are just, but whether by design or by accident, more intensive. Um, and that can can change massively. But in the end, the idea is you produce a fairly small piece of work uh, that you would then 
defend uh, in some sort of defense. You may have a presentation you have to give and, and ultimately produce a thesis. And what is a thesis? Well, I mean, it's a, uh, it depends on, on the, the example of it, but in some way it's going to be a written paper uh, of the results of your project. So in the same way of a scientific manuscript, uh, often they're in the, the vein of one of those, um, and it uh, will outline the results of that project. And for some students that can actually go on to be, for some undergraduate students that can go on to be published uh, in, uh, in on its own. Uh, and in other times, those data may get incorporated into another paper and not necessarily make up a full publication. But uh, yeah, so I guess one thing we could point out here is that often a undergraduate thesis is very closely linked with a grad, some graduate students' work, like a almost spin-off or a side project or a question that came up. And so in, no, in those cases, um, your data may be interesting on its own, answer a very specific question, but in terms of actually producing a publication, it might be a subset of a bigger study. Yeah, that, that's common in big labs for sure, that uh, students, uh, more senior graduate students, uh, facilitate, mentor, whatever it might be, undergraduate thesis uh, projects. Yep, for sure. And and may help them to put that into a publication or to, uh, uh, in the end, uh, incorporate that into their own work somehow. So then the next step up the ladder, I guess, is one, um, the metaphorical ladder would be going from your undergraduate degree where you've completed a course <clears throat> that led to a, a thesis in the end um, to doing a master's. Yeah, I don't, then, I don't have a master's degree, so I will leave this one to Adam. <laughs> <laughs> so from my own experience, a master's is typically, in, a master of science at least, is typically a two-year program here in Canada. And um, so here, quite often you're going up, so on in turn, going up the scale a little bit in terms of the direct involvement at the planning stages of the student. So whereas in an honors thesis, maybe you're walking in and you're giving a list of off-the-shelf projects that are ready to run. Because I guess one thing we glossed over in terms of the undergraduate thesis would be the timeline. Really, your project's going to be very limited to what can be done where you start potentially in September and finish at the absolute latest in April, so in one academic year. Um, so that often does not incorporate a field season or anything like that. You need to have stuff ready to go. So that's where the, the concept of an off-the-shelf project or a spin-off of something else, uh, of something bigger is required. Whereas my experience with the master's thesis was a little bit different. You're not necessarily dealing with an off-the-shelf project, but maybe a couple of off-the-shelf ideas. And so when I first approached uh my own, uh, who would become my master's uh, supervisor, um, the idea was he had three or four project ideas that he thought would be relevant to um, or applicable to building a thesis out of um, or a research question that would have potentially interesting answers. And so these are the four ideas I've got. We can work with them in terms of, you know, the access that we have uh, in terms of our um, field work set up and our lab set up. Um, and any one of these would be interesting. Do any of them appeal to you? And then basically I chose one from there. Um, then yeah, a lot of the um, development of how we'd actually go about answering that question was then left up to me. Yeah, I think you, you tend to, or not always, uh, 
but often master students will have a little more input into what exactly they are going to work on. Uh, and that really can depend probably on the students. Some, I think, may find uh, that quite a challenge to define your own project and to think about what you might want to spend a couple of years of your time considering. Uh, and that's that's the first foray into the sort of broader part of science of coming up with ideas. And, and that's something that the supervisor should probably help them narrow down those kind of great ideas that they've thought about and think might really, really work well to what is feasible uh, from a scientific perspective, from a lab resources perspective, because it may not be uh, easy to go and collect all these samples that you think would be really, really interesting. Um, and you get a good chance in that master's level to bridge the gap between being uh, directed learning at the undergraduate level and really having your own self-directed uh, work when you're at a more senior level. And then going up one further step up in the metaphorical planet to a PhD thesis, again, from my own experience, then uh, that was much more wide open in my case where I actually approached the supervisor and proposed the project myself. Basically, I kind of had my master's thesis that was based on um, uh, calcium decline um, in modern uh, zooplankton populations. And I went from there to, um, I think this has interesting paleolimnological applications. You know, uh, do you agree? I think this make a cool project. I think it could be explored in these general ways. And basically I had a proposal off the get-go um, that I approached with and then went into the lab. And then it's like, do you have the asking the supervisor, do you have the ability to, you know, make this happen in terms of more physical sense? But I think it's a cool idea. Yeah. That would be my own kind of experience. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, PhDs are one of the things that uh, people come into them from very different perspectives. Some people will have taken time off. Some people will have worked significantly in the field. Um, some people will have gone straight from a another graduate degree or maybe not even completed another graduate degree, which was my experience. I didn't do a full master's. I went right into my PhD from a year of it. Uh, and as many different people come into them, you get different examples of what comes out of them. Some of them get built along the way. My this thesis or the chapters of my PhD weren't the ones I outlined when I decided I was going to start one. They are things that came up along the, the trajectory of finishing these four years of uh, time and got incorporated into the final product uh, in under some general theme. Uh, and that worked out really well. And others, you have a very defined goal that you're going to work towards through these specific chapters. So there's lots of different examples of what makes up a PhD. Uh, but yeah, and I, I just jumped in yeah. there. And I also think if I went back to my very first proposal, I think what ended up being produced at the end was a very scaled back version of like the reality stepped in is like, yes, you know, there was a lot of cool ideas, though, but taking them all to completion would have taken you know, 10 years rather than four years. Sure. The, the, you may not understand the logistics. Things can change as you are uh, in the actual degree. Things can come up that completely set you on a different path. There's lots of different things. I guess that's, that would be my main point of the difference between them is just how more maybe flexible the PhD is. There's more time in the actual program 
Uh, there's a lot more, I would hope, insight and self-directed uh, decisions on what goes into the actual thesis. So you define the questions that you're interested in and in many ways define how you go about answering those questions. Uh, because when you're done that, the assumption is, you know, you're ready in theory to, uh, conduct research completely independently, uh, maybe in, in, at the head of a very large research group. So you should be able to do those, those components of it. Yeah. And, um, I think, you know, that covers the basis of at least the angle that we'll be talking about for the rest of the episode in terms of what a, the various three theses are. Um, but you know, some key components, um, to, to it is like what to do and like, you know, why would you be interested in research or how do you know you will like research? And I think a lot of it comes down to you don't. And like the very, in many ways, the most important of the three, like, so the most, you know, valuable of the three, I guess, would be the last one. But in many ways, the most important one I'd say is the first one, because getting the taste of the research, um, uh, and knowing whether you have the personality to, you know, deal well in that sort of, you know, even within the constraints of an honors thesis, but largely self-directed, working at your own pace with a very um, uh, ephemeral goal at the end um, and move it along and complete it. And a lot of times you don't know whether or not you like it until you do it. And, you know, some people love it and live for it. Other people think they would love it. And actually don't very much. And it's kind of like we get referred to, kind of got into a little bit when we're talking about field work is you really don't know until you, uh, you know, have at least done some serious dabbling. And one way that science was uh, described to me very, very early on in, I think it might've been in like first or second uh, year course, it really stuck with me was, you know, science is finding something really interesting and then continuing to do it ad nauseum. Yeah, I couldn't agree and that, more. Uh, and, and that's not for everyone. Oh, for sure. Uh, going back to what you said about the uh, the value or the importance of the degrees, I, I absolutely agree with that. And that uh, whatever your terminal degree is, is what is going to go in your email footer and on your business cards if you still use such a things. Uh, but whichever your first degree is, whether that be an undergraduate thesis uh, project your first taste of research or a master's degree is what makes you decide whether you want to continue down that road. Um, and doing a an honors thesis is a great way to get that opportunity, but a master's degree can take that place just as well uh, and give you that opportunity because they are fairly short and you spend a fair bit of your time doing courses and teaching and that kind of thing. So that can be just as uh, applicable. So if you don't have an honors thesis where you did a research project that certainly doesn't negate the value that the masters gives for doing the same thing, finding out whether that's something you're keen on, just as Adam said. Yeah. The, the main difference between the two would be the the scale and the level of commitment at the beginning. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, if, if you're you can. two years off the go. Yeah. I would like, I don't know how much of our listenership is, you know, mid-level undergraduate students i'm going to guess somewhere around zero this will be this will be mandated listening. content for all of my students <laughs> <laughs> but uh um i i would you know h highly recommend doing an undergraduate thesis to anyone that's even slightly thinking about it um you know there'd probably be at least in my again can only speak for myself but you know out of all the courses that i've taught 
Um, they were the best ones um, just because they were completely different than everything else. Um, and they set me down on the road that I am on. But, uh, um, you know, and I don't know if I if I hadn't done it, I don't know if I would have gone down the master's road because I just within, you know, my family and my circle of friends, I, I guess there were a couple, but it just was not on really on my radar. And I was kind of a reluctant student at each step of the way. And like Josh, who mentioned he rolled up and um, like I definitely did my undergraduate degree, worked for a little, we can come back to this in a little while, but worked for a little bit, then a master's and then worked for a little bit and then a PhD and then worked for a little bit. And, you know, I could have chopped off two or three years of the timeline if I had known what I wanted to do earlier, but that's not the road I took. Yeah. Uh, and I would say I had a very different experience. I guess we've kind of moved on to that next uh, section. But um, I always knew I was interested in doing research of some sort. But it's interesting now that mostly I teach. Uh, but at the time, I knew that I was going to switch to a PhD. Um, so it made sense to only do a year of my master's and continue because I was interested in the same project. Uh, I you know, I've, I finished as quickly as I think you possibly could almost uh, of all of my degrees. And, uh, and that worked for me because that's what I was keen on doing. Um, and so at what point can I just jump in and ask you a question? So, you know, before we really talk about life as a grad student, just keeping on our individual roads. So at what point then did you know that you wanted to go the graduate student route? Probably, um, well, uh, when I went uh, to undergrad, my intention was to take medical science. Like I came as a life science okay. student, and very I quickly within as a, like in first year, I never we had a common first year, so it was fine. Uh, and as soon as I took the ecology section of our first year biology course, I knew that's what I was actually interested in. It was just something I hadn't been expo exposed to as in, in high school. Uh, and I don't think it was too long after that when I realized that you could study and kind of push the ideas of what we were learning in class further, the, even in a tiny, tiny way, which is what <laughs> the ad nauseum for one thing, uh, part Adam was talking about. Uh, I, that's probably when I decided that's something I would like to try at least. Yeah. Cause mine was like, I was definitely much more floundering through my undergraduate degree. I began in biochemistry and then gradually liked it less and less and less and tried squeezing in more electives where I could. And those were more biology driven. And then, uh, I guess the reason I ended up doing an honors thesis was I, um, uh, I don't even remember exactly what the sign was, but it was one of those, like, it was like a specific, it wasn't like a go and have beer with profs. It was give us your name, you've got questions in biology, we'll match you up with a prof that you have no uh, courses with. So there's no power dynamics there, I guess. And then you can pick his brain over a beer or his or her brain over a beer. And that's how I met Roland Hall at Waterloo. And I guess I was in third year. I think I wrote ecology and evolution on my thing. I was just like, I'm, I don't know what I want to do. I don't, I don't want to be doing, um, gels for the rest of my life. I'm like out biochemistry is not what I thought it was going in. And then I just started chatting with him. I was like, so what exactly do you do to get at ecology and evolution? He started describing payload to me. I'm like, that's kind of cool. And so how long have you been a, uh, a prof? And he's like, well, actually, you know, what day is it? It's like, I'm a couple months in at this point at Waterloo. Yeah. And, uh, I just ended up talking to him and then ended up being his first, uh, 
trainee of they, any kind? Well, he had a master's, he had a oh, master's he did, student okay. already, yeah. but I was his first undergraduate student, yeah. like that following year. And then that, and that, and that's how I got on that road. So it was just like one of these kind of chance encounters. And then it just kind of, de- not derailed, but set me on a course that I never really recovered from. Yeah. A little bit of pinball kind of bounced around a little bit and got there. Yeah. Uh, whereas I was interested in just ecology broadly, uh, and I didn't know I wanted to do paleo. I took uh, third year uh, aquatic ecology limnology course with John Small, and um, obviously was interested in it. And he was uh, very well known. It was not long after he'd won the Hertzberg, uh, so you know a lot of press about his research. Uh, but in general, I just didn't want to go back to working in a dental office, which is what I did in the summer previous to uh, my third year. And so I applied to every summer job that would get me to stay in Kingston doing something related to research or biology. And uh, that's the one that landed uh, and was the one I decided to to do and never left. All right. So... Let's move on now. We're giving a little bit of background on the theses and um, ourselves and how we ended up doing them Um, and talk a little bit about uh, life as a science grad student in terms of why would you want to do it or not even or what is the life that you live while you're living the dream of counting millions of diatom slides and picking millions of carbon head capsules and all the other things that we live for. Sure. Uh, I would say the the main answer to that is that it really depends. And there are a lot of things that can tailor what the graduate student experience you uh, experience uh, looks like. And we can talk about a few of them. Uh, but again, it's always going to be from our perspective, Adam's being from a couple of labs and mine being from really one lab. Uh, but one of the big ones that I think we should talk about first is related to the nature of the lab that you are doing your research in and how big that lab is and what its makeup is and some of the dynamics related to the size of the lab uh, that you train in at any given point. Yeah, I've got some personal experience here. I've both been uh, as a member of Pearl, um, which is where Josh did his his PhD and undergraduate thesis. It is a big lab. Um, You know, if you count... Uh, graduate students, undergraduate students, uh, researchers, postdocs, uh, technical staff. Like we're de- definitely dealing with thirty plus pe- uh, professors, thirty plus people within within the lab group uh, on on a given day. Whereas uh, when I was doing my masters, well, I just mentioned when I was doing my honors thesis, I was the first undergraduate student, and there was one other master's student um, and the professor, and he was a small lab um, and also very early in his career. So we were also going through the period of like buying equipment. So, I, you know, like dealing with like loaner microscopes and stuff from other labs at the time. Um, and then my master's was quite similar in that at least when I started, I was the only master's student and uh, there was one PhD student at the same time. And then by the time I finished, I think instead of two students, there were, there were three or four. I have to look back and see exactly when I finished relative to other people started, but there might, there was at least three and possibly four students in the lab. But either way, that's like a night and day difference in terms of, you know, three versus 30 that you will interact with in your lab, as opposed to in your department or on your floor or in your building on a very regular basis day to day. 
Yeah, it's an order of magnitude difference. It's quite a bit. Uh, and that can very much change the dynamic. And it sometimes that can be related to the seniority of the supervisor that you have, not always, but oftentimes as people get uh, further on in their career, they tend to take on larger research groups. They may have the funding necessary to support that, or they may just be involved in more collaborative projects, which are necessary in order to have such a large group. Um, and the dynamic of supervisor trainee is going to vary depending on the group. But oftentimes, uh, you may be interacting much more when you're in a larger group, larger research group with your co-researchers uh, uh, and less directly every day with the supervisor themselves. And that can be a really great opportunity to learn from other people in the lab because you get a real diversity of uh, opinions and ideas and backgrounds. People came from different places where they did their masters and you bring a lot of different ideas together. So that can be a really dynamic uh, training environment as a graduate student. Yeah. And there's a little bit of both. So in the small lab, you know, I definitely remember when I was learning diatoms in my, um, uh, in my honors thesis, like I was knocking on my supervisor's door, you know, every, and we didn't have any computers yet to take pictures. Um, so it was on the fly of like, I think this is a, you know, M4 Libica. What do you think, Roland? And then he'd be like, no. And then, it, you know, it'd be this and going back every couple of minutes. And now looking back, you know, I'm sure that would be an unimaginable scenario for him because even his lab group has grown to the point that there's no longer just one person learning diatoms and their own his lab. There's like a, um, uh, what am I trying to think of like an institutional knowledge? So you've got more doors than you can knock on um, uh, to ask questions of. And you have more people at the same level that you are or somewhere close to the same level or have gone through the uh, um, uh, procedure not that long ago. Because, you know, it may seem that, not seem that way while you are the honor student. But really, chances are the master student that you're talking to that seems incredibly knowledgeable was sitting in your seat just one year earlier. Yeah, um, for sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, I think the doors you can knock on is a really good uh, analogy for it. Because oftentimes you may not be in the same building as the actual super, like our labs are in a different place from our offices. So the faculty are in a different place physically. Uh, so having someone there that you can ask these questions to is really beneficial. Uh, and, but there would be cases where, you know, you may be sharing a limited number of resources. So big labs are not necessarily better. Don't, don't oh, yeah. think no, I'm, I'm saying I'm, that. I'm, I'm not trying to uh, give that impression at all. And like both have pros and cons and, Again, like everything else, would be personally types of what you like uh, like with. So in the in, in the small lab, the amount of one on one time you will get with your supervisor is again orders of magnitude more than it would be the case in the big lab because you're going to have most likely more of a pyramid structure in a very big lab where you have a professor, a couple of research scientists, or postdocs and PhDs and masters, and then you basically when you have a problem um, or a question, you know, you basically work your way up that ladder in terms of how simple the question might be. If it's just like, you know, what drawer is X in, you know, you're not going to walk halfway across the building to knock on your, the, the professor's door to ask, ask necessarily if you can just turn to the desk beside you and go, you know, where is this? And then, you know, as the questions become 
increasingly big picture, then you'd go further up the pyramid. Whereas in a small lab, you know, there's only two or three of, the, of you there and you you just have a huge, much larger one-on-one time at every level. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there, there are great things about both. I've, I've, as a postdoc, I was in a, not a tiny uh, lab, but um, a lab that the that Mike Pizarek wasn't actually physically at the university anymore. He had uh, moved to a different institution. So I was there with the last few grad students he had at Carleton. Uh, and that was a very different, uh, very different environment related to, uh, not having them. Like, it was an email or a Skype call. There was no physical contact most of the time, uh, there. And that was the same for his graduate students who were finishing up their degrees, uh, at the old institution. And, you know, everyone made it, made it through and you form different linkages depending on the situation and all of them can be really, really good. Yeah. So that must have catapulted you into like a very senior-esque position very quickly uh, for a lot of questions as being the person that was physically there to answer a lot of stuff, even though you, may, you know, were the newest person in the lab in many ways. Yeah, exactly. It was a yes and no to that. If it was about finding something, no. If it was, you know, more of a methodological or procedural stuff, then yeah, that, that did come up more commonly. And I was the only postdoc at the time. So, actually, there were no PhDs at the time either. It was just master's students. So, okay, um, yeah, because this is a, a key one um, in, I guess, not in lab size, but just labs in general, is the importance of networking and really multiple mentors. Because you'll have the supervisor. Your supervisor is obviously a mentor, but a lot of what maybe classes your peers at the time will also be mentors in many ways, even if they're just a year or two ahead of you and on the curve. But, you know, I can definitely, um, do it. Um, I guess a shout out to Andrew Patterson who works at the ministry of environment today. When I first met him while I was an undergraduate student, um, and he was a postdoc or he showed up as a postdoc in Roland's lab, I guess, uh, maybe I'd finished my undergraduate thesis and I was working as a, um, a lab tech for a little while. But we shared desks, uh, or not shared an office and had desks side by side for a, about a year. And um, he basically had a huge mentoring role for me in terms of just answering all kinds of questions. Um, he basically, you know, what list serves to, what email lists to like subscribe to um, in the pursuit of, a, you know, master's project initially. Like all these kind of questions and it all, you know, all stemmed from just who did I happen to have a desk beside in that period of time? Yeah, I think that's a, a key point is that who uh, can help you on your way is not related to where they are in their degree. I recall very clearly uh, teaching as an on undergraduate student, I just started my thesis teaching some of the master students, some of the lab methods, because I had been there for the whole summer before that and they were just starting. So, you know, that worked out really well. They got what they needed there and no one cared that, they had already finished their mass, their undergraduate degrees. It's just about who is, uh, has that experience. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And, you know, the mentor, you know, mentors eventually become peers. Um, in some cases, you know, in some cases, fellow podcast hosts, <laughs> fellow podcast hosts, I, you know, you know, I was very proud to be your mentor for those many years. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, um, 
but yeah, we, we kind of got into this with field work uh, in terms of like the intensity of a relationship that developed or the relationship that will develop over an intense period of time. But, you know, you're going to go through something similar in a lab setting, um, except instead of it being super intense over a couple of weeks, it's like, well, I guess it'll be some very intense periods, but over a couple of years going through defenses and proposals and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, um, this, you know, the network, um, will, uh, that you build, um, in many ways by chance, cause it just happens to be other students that have signed up to work in the same lab that you chose, um, uh, end up, you know, being a key element of your professional network going forward. Yeah. They become your cohort. Uh, and, and they can be also, that's the other thing, just going back one step to the small lab. Uh, oftentimes you form those same linkages with other researchers doing other things in your department, in your faculty, whatever it is. There's ways to find that network, even in a lab where you're the only person. And they do become your professional network. Uh, you'll see them at conferences. You'll catch up with them. You know, you'll see them on Twitter and all those different things and be able to catch up with them. Even if you're not exceptionally like really, really tight, I, not like podcast host kind of tight they're always going to be part of that network that you uh that you have from your academic training and that you can link to in a variety of different ways yeah and i guess what i'm um I'm i seem to talk most of the time now from a big lab perspective but i you know i have been in that small lab as well and i think the key difference in terms of like the network and the social group is where in a really big lab you know in many ways sometimes like working at pearl you know, as a social group on a Friday night going to the grad club, you know, the group was the, the um, critical mass of a networking social group was there in the same lab. Um, but in a smaller lab, that same thing will happen at the floor level or departmental level or, you know, the networking will, will still happen. It just may not be in the desk beside you. It'll be in the lab beside you or the office beside you or you know, further down the floor. Yeah, for sure. And then the last, oh, so go ahead. And then I was going to say one thing with the small lab is big lab. Just one last thing tying it on, on the differences and how that ties into networking that I think is kind of interesting is in a big lab, when you have someone to ask a question, questions of, there are a lot of people that have gone through maybe not the exact same thing, but the same general sequences you have thought about problems in the same way. And it's like, oh, I've been there, I was here. And then I, you know, it threw me for a loop too, but then this is what worked for me. And you'll do that in a small lab. But what will happen is if your network group involves a lot of different labs that are look, have different analytical approaches or different ways of looking at science, like I'm talking from science. Um, but, you know, in terms of like outside the box thinking, uh, I think, uh, when you're a small lab, you're more likely to have a network with people in very different boxes. And that can be a, a, a real plus sometimes as well. Yeah, for sure. And then the last thing on this uh, we, that we talked about is that uh, you can move between these, these different situations, these different scenarios, and switching between them can be pretty jarring. Uh, in general, we were saying before we started recording that uh, anytime you switch, you're probably adding time to the whole scenario because of all the logistical differences and learning about new university and learning a new project, new city, moving physically. Physically moving, finding a place to live, you know, um, 
realizing that you moved to the new city and picked a terrible place to live and then having to do a quick uproot. All, all those things don't happen when you just stay put. Um, and I think, I think once upon a time, I kind of, uh, not worried or fretted about it, but it's like, oh, you know, I spent, you know, three years more, uh, and then I needed to based on not being decisive early on and knowing what I wanted to do. And then, but in the grand scheme of things, those three years were definitely not wasted. Um, you know, I just did not walk away with the title of doctor as early as I theoretically could have, but that's because I was doing other things. Yeah. And those were all ended up to be quite valuable. And there can be, uh, I don't know, it's often um, discussed that it's there's value in moving around and going to different places. And I think that is um, something that may be being challenged more than it uh, was in the past. It used to be uh, the suggestion that if you had all your degrees from the same institution, you would be looked there would be the tent potential to be looked down a little bit on that in job applications and things like that. And I think we're getting to the point that it might still be the case in some situations. We're probably realizing that there are good reasons why people stay put sometimes. Uh, it's not only because that's the only position that they could find themselves. There are reasons why uprooting isn't uh, always the best option for every person. And you may have family or other constraints that keep you in one location. So I wouldn't be as uh, concerned about that as uh, some people might make it out to be. It can yeah. be really useful, so, uh, but yeah, can be useful. Uh, and then, you know, yes, family constraints and um, uh, financial constraints is a big oh, huge. One. And then, yeah. um, you know, moving is expensive. And uh, I think I, we glossed over this, but um, you know, in terms of, you know, life is a grand, science grad student. One thing that you hear a lot um, and is, I'm going to do, uh, I'm finishing up right now. I'm going to go work for a little while and I'll come back and do my master's or just, you know, a master's is a real grind and uh, I'm going to take a little break, work for a while, and then I'll come back and do my PhD. And by and large, the answer is you probably won't. Because as awesome as being a, a uh, grad student is, you know, it's really hard, to, or at least in my experience, I found it, it's really hard to go back. It's really, you know, when you're going, unless you're, you know, I guess it depends on what the financial and working situation was, but the job and decision to go from, you know, a working career building member of society to go back to graduate student um, life, um, is, is really difficult. Oh yeah, no doubt. I've not seen, not, not a huge number of people actually do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I think that's probably true. I think, uh, there are some great exceptions, but, uh, there are absolutely exceptions. I'm just talking about, you know, if we did a general poll of, you know, uh, you know, within our entire group of everyone we've ever met with in, in a graduate student setting, the majority of them would have powered through, I think, or like with people like myself that took like maybe a one year dalliance on like a related kind of job, you know, here and there. Yeah, those people may never have come like continued on. It may have just been something they considered and, and weren't as uh, yeah. certain that that was going to happen at the time either. I think if you want to continue with the degree, uh, you may not at the time and you may choose that you do to come back to it and that works out. But uh, I think. Yeah, I, I'm not as convinced by that. Maybe okay. I I, I kind of like uh, yeah. Okay, 
um, ascribe it to the whole, you know, life happens while you're making plans. Oh yeah. It's very challenging to go back. back. I'm not saying it's not challenging to go back and there may be people who want to, who can't, uh, for many reasons, uh, because financially it's not, you know, it's not a, uh, time to bank serious amounts of money, uh, for most people. Yeah. It's not even that it's, uh, well, but going from, you know, if you're undergraduate and you're one room in a house of like five or six other people, that's fine. And then you move away, you get a job and you live on your own for a while. The potential of going back to like roommate life and stuff becomes less and less appealing as time goes on. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no doubt. Okay. So the last thing that we decided we wanted to talk about is, and maybe we'll finish this up uh, with this is what is a postdoc, Adam? You know what? It is many things to many people. And um, I I don't really know. Usually what I don't, I don't even usually is a, a good thing. But basically, uh, postdoc is a um, short form for postdoctoral fellow. So I think one of the main things we can say about postdocs is they t- typically have their PhD. Um, but not always. There are definitely some notable exceptions that uh, um, jump into their first postdoc uh, or into their postdoc without quite finishing their PhD. Um, and I did not do this myself. I've seen a couple of people do this. Uh, I would not recommend it based on being a third a third person if you can avoid it. Um, juggling both seems to be quite, quite difficult. Um, but basically, usually at that point, you're doing a um, you're associated with a research project. The idea is you know how to do the stuff, so you're not necessarily dealing with the same kind of learning. No, I, I, I continue on it, and then I'll, I'll disagree on on that maybe a little bit. Uh, okay, but um, okay. Well, you won't be taking any courses. No, 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 no. For sure, I agree with that. All right, like that level of um, you know. The learning, yes, should be learning new techniques or jumping labs or, but, you know, at this point, you know what research is and you have a general idea of how to write a paper, you know, what science is in the discipline that you're dealing with. Um, You've got a proven track record and you're trying to expand your repertoire in some way, whether that is in uh, new techniques versus um, or new settings for the application of the techniques that you do know. Um, And you know, there's a planned project that you're being attached to in some way. Yeah, I, I actually really agree sensible. with all of that now. <laughs> okay. But <laughs> that's what you get for cutting me off. Sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, I went, well, it wasn't my first postdoc. My first postdoc, I uh, did the exact same technique, but in a new location, just as I said. Second one, I went and did uh, like organic chemistry stuff, and I didn't know anything when I showed up. <laughs> um, so, but it, but it wasn't like you, it wasn't like a, jumping stream in terms of a master's to a PhD on completely unrelated projects. No. The, the, the common thread there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for together. sure. There was a linkage to aquatic ecosystems and contaminants and those sort of things. So not really, but from a methodological perspective, it certainly wasn't. I, I had things to learn for sure. Yeah. But it wasn't quite as extreme as like, you know, someone that would have done their, you know, master's work in math, let's say, and then jumped into like, biostats as their uh, PhD, where there would be a huge, huge learning curve on so many levels. Yeah. I think you probably could find 
examples of that out there, but they would be very, very rare. Most people are sticking in the field that they did their PhD research in. Yeah. Uh, and the one nice thing about it is that uh, you're not beholden to producing any final document. You know, you're right. I mean, you may have reports or that sort of thing, but you're not producing a thesis. So it doesn't have to uh, be this coherent, uh, contained document that has different parts to it that are linked by some general topic. It can be a complete hodgepodge mix of papers on different topics. Could be old data sets that you're supervisor or someone had that you are working up that they never had a chance to get to. It really is just a time to do full-time research uh, without, assumedly, any of those uh, requirements of courses or often even teaching, though many postdocs do try their hand at uh, teaching like full courses, not teaching assistantships, because that can be a useful skill for the job market. Uh, but in general, it's a time to do full-time research. And that's been my, my experience in um, and so you don't necessarily have the beginning, middle and end of like a proposal type development slash defense of a thesis, but you know, there'd be a project and we want to figure out X or we want to work up X data, or we want to see if X techniques can be done wherever. And, um, and then there's a lot of variance in how structured they are and how much room there is for meandering and following tangents. Some of them are very tight timeline, got to get, you know, this data work, worked up by this date because it's tied to this grant proposal. Other times it's much more ephemeral in terms of we have money to work up this data or explore this question um, and uh, come help us do that. Yeah, exactly. That's a good time. Uh, it, it's a, I don't know. It's a, it's a very short time period. I, I found, well, it's short, it feels very short. Like by that, I mean, um, if you have a funded postdoc, which is great, they can be very short. Two years is a very small amount of time, especially if you're learn some, learning something new. Uh, and it seems very quickly that you're searching for the next pot of money to continue on, uh, or you're putting a good deal of your spare time into uh, job applications and doing all the other things that if you are interested in a an academic position, which not everyone is, not everyone who does a PhD is, not everyone who does a postdoc is, but uh, if you are, that it, it really can be a time that goes very quickly. Uh, and it's, it's um, I don't know, I found it a, a, one of the harder parts of the, uh, of the experience because of that. Yeah, I don't I, I don't even know how it, if I have any real response to that. It depends. Hard and harder in some ways. Um, not as like I I kind of in, not enjoyed, but just n not having the constraints of graduate studies. So no coursework, no um, TA ships. It's just like just get to do what you know what you're interested in, mm -hmm. um, and and focus massively on that if not to all else and i i, I yeah i enjoyed it really mm -hmm. yeah that's fair i think everyone has different uh examples of of that and uh yeah there were great things about it and other things that i'm glad i don't uh <laughs> i don't have to do anymore which i think mo would be 
the way people would describe any of those degrees is that there are, there are great things about <laughs> all of them. Uh, and then there are parts that are really, really challenging. Uh, and they can be the same thing. Just and each step of the way, a lot of, a lot of relief at the end when you complete them. Like it's like, Oh yeah. Each, 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 each element of them is like, you know, uh, I would imagine, you know, putting two years into a thesis versus, and then having that thesis to show at the end as I did this versus, you know, working at a job. Yes. Two years, put it in, but it doesn't have the same kind of like capstone of like, this is the end of an era. I'm moving on. Um, I, I, I put a lot of, you know, in hindsight, these are major markers in your life really. Yeah, no doubt. Anything else? Anything else we want to talk about here? I don't think so. I guess um, I've had a just a real meandering kind of waffle on what graduate studies meant to yeah. us, which is cool. This is our podcast. It's stuff that is near and dear to our hearts in, our, in many ways, both as having gone through the process ourselves and also seeing a lot of people in our day to day at various stages of the journey already. Yeah, and I guess uh, we're, or, we're of their journey. Yeah, and we're still, I mean, we're still linked to it quite quite closely. I think you'd probably get a very different opinion from someone who had moved on to uh, um, uh, a government research position or a, a, a consulting position. You know, we see graduate students, maybe, well, we don't see them every day now, but, uh, you know, we see them all the time. So uh, it's um, something that we, I guess, get to think about quite a bit. Yeah, and I guess one other thing I would do is, you know, we touch on a bit with like, how do you know you will like research? I can't imagine ever pushing someone into the graduate student role. Like you, ha it has to be self-driven, you know, like going down this road because you think you should because of what someone might think or, you know, like that, that, that doesn't seem to, to work out too well. If you're, it has to be from within and know that you like it because the highs are high, the lows are low, and the lows are a lot lower if you still kind of enjoy them. Yeah, for sure. Or what you're doing. Yeah. Because if you're not that into it, the lows are really low. Yeah, no doubt. You know, when you're when you're caught in the in the you know in the middle of the grind where you're like, I cannot imagine this being done, and I'm just grinding through samples, and I've got years to go. If you don't, if if you're there for the wrong reasons, it can be kind of miserable. Yeah, that, I guess that would be my last my last point. Maybe is that uh, when you said about if you have lots of years to go, uh, it can be a time that you definitely have to work on your own uh, time management skills and your ability to motivate yourself or to continue through with the work. Because sometimes there really aren't a lot of defined deadlines that you have. You know, you have these four years to finish this project, these different parts of it. Um, figuring out how you're going to go about doing that is the hardest, I think one of the hardest parts, if not the hardest part is to get that schedule into your system. Yeah. Um, yeah. Time management and being self-directed is a key thing. Having your supervisor knock on your door and go, Adam, the clock is ticking. When are you actually going to plan on being done this thing? Uh, type of conversation um, is, or, how close are those last two chapters to me seeing a very first draft 
are, are, are tough conversations. Sometimes. Yeah. Not, not to say don't enjoy it while you're in it because it is a great time. Um, and one that you probably won't be going back to. I, I, I that being said, I would, I'm glad I'm done <laughs> all of my degrees. Uh, I like the, the job now, but, um, it was a great time period for sure. All right. Uh, next week we are going to have our first guest. Uh, I, I confirmed again today that we're going to do that. So that will be what we move to for the next podcast. You'll hear a different voice than Adam and mine. So that is, it might be, but we'll still both. Yeah, we'll, we'll be here. I'm invited to. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> so that might be exciting or not. Um, but if you have yeah, anything, you can listen for two people in trying to figure out how to conduct an interview on the fly. Yeah, that should be fine. Uh, I think it might require more preparation than we normally do. Maybe we'll see. See how the week goes. Uh, and, uh, but otherwise in the meantime, if you have anything, you can hit us up on Twitter at core ideas, paleo, uh, or you can send us an email at core ideas podcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on the web at core ideas. And that's where we have the show notes for all, all the episodes we've done so far, as well as the episodes themselves. You can download directly from there, as well as get them wherever you get your podcasts from. And otherwise, if not, stay safe out there, everyone. Uh, take care, and we will catch you soon. Yeah, thanks for listening, and stay safe. <laughs>